can I tell you this? My concern in life is not how people view me. It's how I've made them feel. And it's all because, you know, I owe it all to Maya Angelou. She's got that quote, and I think I'm taking it out of context, but part of her quote is, people won't remember the things you said. They won't remember the things you did. They remember how you made them feel. And I think that if I'm interacting with people, I care more, I care less about what do they think about me and more of how, you know, are they, are they comfortable with themselves? Do they feel like they matter? Do they know that, that they're okay? You know, I just, for some reason, it's just so much more important to me than, I mean, that gives me a better feeling than, oh, they really were impressed by that joke I told. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 30. I'm Jamie Berger. My guest today is Abby Crutchfield. She's a comedian. She's the former host of People Magazine's Now, and among other accolades, has had her tweets hailed as some of the best of the year by Huffington Post Comedy. Abby's been living in L.A. recently, to shoot the second season of True TV's You Can Do Better. But later this year, she'll return to Brooklyn, where she co-produces the weekly stand-up hour, The Living Room Comedy Show. And amidst all that, she'll be touring as part of the Cake Comedy Tour. Uh, You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at curlycomedy.com. Spelled just the way it sounds, and I'll mention that again later. Those of you who've been listening to the show will remember my conversation with my old friend Matthew Letkowitz, who is Abby's co-host and the creator behind You Can Do Better. And that was back in episode nine. In that episode, Matthew incredibly candidly expressed his cynicism about the show he was about to debut, and along with just about everything else about fame and Hollywood. While watching season one of the show, as I saw the two of them, a lot of the time with him being bad boy to her good cop, I became interested in her thoughts on it all. So we finally spoke in February while she was in L.A. shooting their second season. One note is that when you hear me refer to Maeve, I'm referring to Maeve Higgins, the wonderful guest of episode 24. After one botched recording, we spoke a second time a week later, with much better results in terms of audio quality anyway, in February. Hey, Jamie. Hi, Abby. How are you? I'm so good. Although it is a little rainy in LA. Oh, it's it's about to be a lot worse than that here. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're I right. Think, it's I, all yeah, relative. I think down in the city too. Uh, tomorrow there's another storm coming in. 
Um, well, 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 based on how we uh, w- went last time, is there anywhere you'd like to start off about, about the topic of fame in terms of your life and career? I think this podcast is cool because it interviews people in different er- moments of fame in their life or, you know, moment, stages in their career is a better way to put it. So, so I'm, I'm at an interesting point where I'm, I would say I'm getting more and more exposure or I have more exposure now than I did before in my career. Um, but I'm not sure I'm doing anything work-wise that would count as a breakout role unless you count my being listed as the funniest tweets of 2014, which is my personal breakout. Um, but yeah, so, so it's kind of like easy to say that I'm not famous, but, but I mean, I'm in entertainment and, Sometimes people recognize me, but it's not. I don't think you could call it. Like, is there an a Z list? A H list? <laughs> oh, come on! It's an H list. Come on, you're up. You're up to at least G. I just thank you. I just think your your listeners should know what they're dealing with straight <laughs> out the gate, so that if they want to just skip ahead to some C some B list, maybe those aren't the. If that's my listener, then then they're listening to the wrong show because this isn't this isn't a. Uh, a chat show with famous people. And one of the best episodes is with my friend Tim, who's a really wonderfully eccentric guy in San Francisco who works for the public library and is a tree trimmer and claims to be the guy who put punk rock and skateboarding together back in the 80s. Whoa. And, and we, and yeah, we went deep there uh, and about his, his experience as Sharon Stone's tree trimmer. So here we are. Okay, starting with that, you... As you were telling me, from childhood in Indiana, wanted to be in front of people doing stuff, mm-hmm. acting, what have you. Yeah, first, first I think as a as a Miss America, and then as a commercial actor. Like I started doing commercials to myself at the at the breakfast table and just talking about the cereal, looking at no camera in particular. But yeah, there was always some kind of performance bug in there. Let's let's let's. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, you weren't Miss America. Never was. You had nope. you had pageant dreams, right? Yes, and to be to be even clearer, it was a dream from like age six to eight, I think. But it was like my early, you know, when it comes to when did you know you wanted to perform for a living? It was like I remember watching pageants and being like, "Ooh, that would be fun." Everybody's looking at you. You're smiling. You're wearing a pretty dress. You know, like I think it all boils down to wanting attention on some level on a, on a larger scale than what you can get in your playground. Mm-hmm. Well, one of, and I, one of my, uh, another one of my early guests, uh, she, her mother, even w- before your, your eight year old, her mother wanted her to be a Gerber baby and they went and auditioned. And nice. That didn't work out either though. No, but that's like the least harmful form of, uh, of stage mothering is it before your kid can even remember it happened. Maeve sent greetings and says, She's likes being your Twitter friend and you're really good on Twitter. Where were you, where were you called the, what were you, what were you called for 2016? Uh, I think in 2014, I made the best Twitter, best tweets of the year for Huffington Post. And then the following year or in 2016, I made Pace Magazine's best tweets. So um, just like, you know, I like, a, I get listed on, uh, I'm sorry, publications uh, throughout the year periodically. So, but that was the pinnacle. That was the top of the top. For me, anyway. Yeah, it sounds like that. That meant a lot. Oh yeah, at the time it sure did. It's still cool. 
somewhere in the middle of of there, we were we you started mentioning your hosting work, and and why don't we give a little background to what you've done, and then talk about that. You were talking about that experience of meeting. Sure. My career in a nutshell is I started to do stand-up in Indianapolis at the open mics, met professionals and thought to do it professionally. Um, So who told me to get to like LA or New York? So I moved to LA um, a year after I started and then got, took some classes, some writing and improv classes at UCB. And then I started getting into commercial acting. And from that, I got my SAG card and was on a house a mod team, which is their sketch team at UCB. I then um, started gaining popularity in t- Twitter jokes, like kind of like increasing my presence, like my public brand um, through Twitter. So uh, that kind of led to teaching a Twitter class at the People's Improv Theater, um, a, like a workshop of like joke writing for comedians and also self-marketing, which led to a social media managing job at College Humor, which kind of put me in touch with a lot of comedians. I got to be in funny videos and just like work kind of, you know, begot work. So I started doing above average music videos. Um, I was in one with Kate McKinnon and one with Jay Farrow, both when they were on SNL. And then, uh, then what did I do? Then I started doing like day player stuff on television and have since, you know, I started touring with my stand up, playing colleges and all that. And then my first, then I got the people now job and now I'm at true TV and there's my career in a nutshell. So when we talk, we, we got a little into your, your hosting and the idea of, you know, your, it seems like your, your dreams revolve more around comedy. But what I was kind of saying is what if you wake up one day, you know, how do your ambitions relate to just succeeding and making a living doing this and being a, a performer as opposed to, you wake up one day and you're Mary Hart and then you, there's no turning back. I think what would be satisfying to me is if I can utilize my skills with my job. I mean, that's what, that's what pursuing a dream is all about, getting to do what you love. So it would be ideal to have a, you know, a lucrative career in what I do. But when it comes to art, that's never really a guarantee and entertainment even less so. So I feel like, um, you know, it would be, it just depends what my priorities are by the time I, get to where I'm going. You know, like if I have a job that doesn't look like I thought of five years back, but it helps feed my family and now I've got a family to feed, then it, then I think it would even out because I would still feel fulfilled and I would find some other way to do my art. But I think that not trying to pursue it for the sake of, you know, just making a bigger and bigger paycheck, that can be alluring, but it's really not that difficult a decision to me. And I see my friends struggle with it, too, when it comes to their corporate jobs. They're like, do I take more money in this sector, which I don't really care for because I already know what it looks like, or do I keep pursuing the thing I want to do, which is less pay? It's usually a, a decision that's, like, really simple for them. But it's just like, no, stick with what you're enjoying, you know? The bigger paycheck will just get you a, I don't know, better vacation or a bigger investment down the line. You know, it just that might pay for your kids' braces, but... Is it worth, you know, the big sacrifice of time or the feeling that you're not being living up to your own potential? I think the beauty of not being uber famous, let's say uber famous is A-list, like Michael Jackson. You can't go outside without a mask on. You know, if, if you're not that, then you have some control over how others treat you, meaning 
if you don't want to be harassed in a certain restaurant, don't go to that certain restaurant. And if you want people to ask you for an autograph, you know, you go down to the Grove and you walk slowly and you make eye contact with people. I think there are ways to kind of invite it and also shut it down when you're not uber famous. I think when you, when you reach a level where people just kind of view you as an object and, and, and also the team that works around you is making money off of you. So their livelihood depends on that high visibility. Then you're going to have less people care about your privacy and less people help you to achieve it without paying for it. Like then you've got to just hire a team of people to, and you've got to shut down restaurants to eat there. I mean, it's just like, ugh. I don't, I don't really know much about it, but I think that, that, you know, that's the, the hard thing. And, you know, I also don't think that someone should have to do less of their art just because they keep getting increasingly famous. Like some people are, they don't like the fame part, but they are that way because pe- they're beloved for what they do. And it's like, well, I don't want to stop doing what I do just because this stupid fame thing is attached. So they kind of learn to live with it. I think some people do crave to, I mean, some, a lot of people crave to be the person who has to shut down a restaurant. And it sounds like you and I are both like that. <laughs> really? That would be the wor- yes. They want to be LeBron after a game. You know. They- I mean, the only problem is I think when they imagine that, they imagine having friends and family surround them. I think nobody imagines the, the downside. They only imagine the cool part, which is such a little kid dream to have. Like, sure. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I think the weird aspect of it that would first bother me is like you got a whole staff of people waiting on you. And just that feels so unnatural to me that, you know, the special treatment, the like positioning yourself in life as better than other people simply because you can afford to be treated that way is really off-putting to me. In general, in the people you've interviewed, does it it seem like a burden to almost all of the the larger? Well, I think there's a difference between dreaming dreaming about it and imagining it someday happening to you and experiencing it and knowing the reality of it. So... So, yeah, I think that and some people who live and know the reality of it have a ego that needs to be stroked or they're extremely insecure. So they enjoy feeling like they're better than others or being treated like they're better than others. Some people welcome that. I think that um, it's not like we, we all have that, whether we're not famous, you know, like nobody wants to wait in line. And when you have to go to a DMV or something and you see some you have a coupon, you get to go ahead, whatever it is, like you take advantage of that. To a degree. So I get that all humans want to feel special and want, want conveniences along the way in life. But at what cost? You know, like if it's at the cost of eight people having to stay up at three, uh, stay up till 3 a.m. when usually they would have gotten off work at eight just because I had to make a romantic gesture in this restaurant. It's like, meh, get over yourself. Nobody who wants attention thinks about how horrible it could be. I think who really, really wants it. And, and I'm sure many people have gotten there and regretted it, but it's like Maeve was saying in our episode, she's got this nice thing where in Ireland, she's moderately famous to the extent that she gets in a cab at the airport and the cabbie knows her and says, Oh, Maeve. Cause he recognizes her voice. And, and now she lives in New York where she can be completely anonymous and she can go, go back and get some of that. And, Come back here. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think I think that probably has more to do with her attitude. It's like she's happy where she is no matter where she is, I'm sure. And, and I mean, that's cool what she's described. And I like my life now where um, I'm actively working and doing something I enjoy. And if I were to have children, I don't have to worry about them getting kidnapped. But I also don't need them celebrated on Instagram, you know, like – 
this is what my kid wore for, you know, their first communion. Isn't this gorgeous? And shouldn't we have a press release about it? Like there's that choice where you're like, your whole life is on display. And, and then you, I don't know, to me, it just kind of like privacy is a precious right of human existence. And some people treat it like it, it shouldn't be. So, okay, let's talk about what you are doing now. Because that's how we okay. know. That's how we know each other. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah, you're fun with my co-host Matthew Lackowitz, and well, together yes. he and I host. <laughs> together he and I host. You can do better on TV. It's a comedy advice show, or as it's been described on the website, a brain candy show that lasts a half hour. And in that 30 minutes, we teach you advice on how to live life a little bit better that you weren't taught. Um, growing up. So like the first uh, season, we did an episode on drinking. Everybody just like has their drink of choice and knows that when they're out socially, they are entitled to drink. Like once you turn 21, you, you're like, I'm, it's legal. I can drink. I should drink. But do you know what to order and when? Do you know when you're being annoying to bartenders? And, you know, do you know how to look classy? Do you know how to charm a date with it? So we, we provided like a ton of different scenarios for people to just kind of feel more knowledgeable on the subject. So you, you listened to Matthew when he talked to me, I was thinking about this since we last spoke, cause we never talked about Matthew's Matthew was on one of the earlier episodes of the show and it was before he began there. You, you guys were in production in July, I think. And he was talking about how this isn't anything I ever wanted to do. And it just happened and I'm going to do it even though it's going to suck. And it was like, I, it was before there was, maybe there's still no publicist involved, but I was like, Matthew, are you sure I'm, can I, are you sure you want me to, you know, put this out there in the world? And he was like, yes. And <laughs> you, I, I, in the show seem like the more, you know, I've, I said the good cop, bad cop. And what I thought about from, since we last spoke was that he seems like, oh, there's an episode of Black Mirror called like 15 million credits or something like that about a guy who is really angry at the system and it's about a talent show and he's trying to save this young woman who's in this you know brutal world futuristic world of the talent show point is that at the end wait wait don't spoil it can you tell it to me without spoiling it because i haven't seen black mirror yet okay fine go ahead this is just one episode he, he, in the end of the show, you think he's going to be, you know, killed by the powers that be for trying to rescue her. But, you know, as the credits are about to roll, what they've done is co-opt him. And he's just, uh, he's, he is a show rant, ranting about the, about how awful the system is. And, and so I kind of feel like this is Matthew's brand <laughs> is cynicism. Yeah. This, well, this, the, the, the kind of, um, beauty of this particular format is he, the show is based on a book that he wrote. So his authentic voice ought to come through in all the scripts and all of, you know, when he's on camera, I have a generally sunny disposition. And so I was cast for that. So when I'm, you know, laughing or smiling about something on the show, it's, it's genuine. It isn't like Abby suddenly soaked about this, you know, robot that can paint nails. It's more like, this is the coolest thing of my life. So, um, so, so there's like a lot of, yeah, if he seems like a curmudgeon on the show, it's because that's kind of a, a part of his personality. And so I think it's a really cool kind of reality show in that we get to be ourselves to guide you through it. And that's pretty much why we were hired is because this is how we act and this is what they want for the show. 
So with that in mind, he might have just been playing the odds ahead of time and been like, oh, it's a show no one's ever heard of. And TV hadn't quite rebranded itself as a comedy network yet. So he may have been going off of the former understanding of true TV. So he could have just been like, who knows if this will go anywhere. But I mean, I feel like that about every project. Who knows if this will go anywhere, but it could. So this is fun. And it's fun while you do it, no matter what the job is. You know, it's like I'm working. Yay. Yeah. Working is good. The book in question was called You Suck at Drinking, just listeners. And it's a, it's a fun little book about how to drink better. And I, I was just Googling it because I was having a brain fart about the title. And just a little little interesting fame tidbit. When I start to enter Matthew Letkowitz in, into Google, the first thing that came up was Matthew Letkowitz married. <laughs> was was what filled in. So That means people are asking. That's right. <laughs> And mine is Abby Crutchfield Cheeto Recipes. Interesting. Uh, are you sure? I must know I eat junk food. Is it really? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying I, I eat a lot of junk food. I often talk about Cheetos, even though I'm not the spokesperson. I should probably start switching to the generic brand uh, when I talk about them. But, you yeah. want to know what did just come up? Um, I think it's uh, – yeah, go ahead. What do you I think it guess, is? Though. I bet it's – Abby Crutchfield, uh, stand-up comedy. Abby Crutchfield, age. Abby Crutchfield, husband. Am I close? Uh, husband. Sweet. Yeah, there you so go. apparently people have been researching the two of you. What if it was just me? It's just what I Google every day, and it finally hits the algorithm. Yeah, yeah. Abby Crutchfield. Oh, that's what I was going to ask you about again. Is Abby Crutchfield De Niro doesn't really come up. What a pain. That's just that's that is a rumor. I'm definitely trying to get started. All right. Well, tell tell the audience uh, about that. Oh, well, I'm 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 a, a mixed race person. I'm biracial, black and white. And the beauty of being mixed race is nobody can tell like which your parents are. Is your dad white? Is your mom white? Is your dad black? Is your mom black? And I feel like you know you should take advantage of this secret gift. Like I feel like I could walk up to Robert De Niro and be like, Hey, I'm your daughter. And he'd be like, well, you know, not sure. And I'm like, don't you see the resemblance? And he'd be like, a little bit, a little bit. And if you could see the proud Bob De Niro face I'm making right now, it would complete the joke. Maybe we can make a little YouTube. you just saying a little bit, a little bit. No, I don't include <laughs> with nothing else attached to <laughs> like it. Like a GIF. Yeah. yeah. A well, GIF of a black yeah. woman, like yeah. making a Robert De Niro face. Well, let, let's um, hear it again and we'll visualize the face. A little bit, a little bit. Now I smiled and like opened it where you can see the tongue, you know, and you're like, uh, okay. So, <laughs> so, um, that's hardly, yeah, that's like, just Robert De Niro used to date black people and I would fantasize about certain famous people being my father, not him. Actually. I actually had a dream that my mom, you know, remarried Gene Hackman. That would have been exciting to have him as a dad, but I'm from Indiana and you know, Hoosiers was really big for us then. So. Uh, something about what you were just saying. Oh, uh, about being mixed race and about branding. And you talked about, you know, about making the work you want to make as compared to, and you said you've never really had management or an agent trying to be like, you're the mixed race lady comic. We're going to, we're going to, you know, make you this thing and that you haven't, uh, you know. No, just early in my stand-up career, like I was trying to get past at a club in New York that no longer exists. I remember the booker telling me that black and white stuff you do is great. Come back in six months with more of that. And I just thought, man, I'm trying not to just have, I think when you're very starting out, that was probably like my second year in comedy. 
you don't want to be boxed in or whatever. And I didn't know how to capitalize on a brand or anything. So I just presented the whole thing. It's like, if, you know, like an overweight person doesn't want to be told, do more fat jokes. Like, no, there's more to me than that. But, you know, if I had been smart, I would have just so I could get past the club. And once you're past then you can talk about whatever you want. Oh, you were smart not to. Um, it's funny <laughs> because you say I resented it. But when you described it, you just seemed you're so even tempered. You're like, no, I'm not going to do that. Whereas I would have been like, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I'm never going to do a joke about being Jewish again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that you're like <laughs> indignant about it. Right. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, I think it's just kind of like. 20 year old pride about like, I know what's best for me and, and lacking in wisdom. But you know, I, I, I wasn't upset about it, but it was more like, no. And then, you know, I think, um, with time, I, I know how to listen better and kind of learn more and learn that if someone's gone before me or if this club booker is trying to tell me what it will take to get past at her club and I should pay attention. Um, you know, whatever that means, like try to be, be myself, be unique, be creative, but also include some jokes about race, explore this identity, you know, like explore that and don't make it just the surface. I'm black and I'm white. So I, this, and I also this, you know, like it can be more, there's more to my life than that. So, so I think, yeah, that comes with, with just being mature and not, not being stubborn when it comes to someone's advice. I mean, I still get that way, to be honest. You talk about not being boxed in. Just here's a little gratuitous info for you. Like, I hate wearing uncomfortable clothing, and I resent that, you know, the price of beauty is pain, that whole, like, stupid adage. And so the more my looks are praised, which is kind of like one of my first selling points when you see me, it's like, oh, this person looks young and healthy and smiley, and, you know, I want to look at this person some more. So the, when someone's, like, talking about my looks, first it really gets under my skin and like secretly i want you to know that hey i'm a really sharp joke writer and you know what else i'm also friendly <laughs> it's like it's like there's more to me than my look but you know i know that everybody wants to be found attractive it's not like you're resenting it but it's kind of just like everybody has a way that they see themselves and would love for others to see them and and you have to kind of get over that and just say hey if this is what people see first and this is what they're responding to work with it you know it is part of you yes instead of going out and like scarring your face yeah or yeah exactly so they'll have to see your true talent yeah totally i think that's that's pretty much the teenage response like when i started to develop i started hunching my shoulders and wearing hugely baggy clothes that were not flattering because i didn't want that attention and i didn't want to be viewed that way and it doesn't that doesn't help anybody great yeah um, one thing I didn't ask you last time is you have a regular show back in New York. You're living in L.A. for, what, the year? How long have you? No, the shooting period is roughly three months. So um, the first period was in the summer. Now we're shooting some additional episodes for season, season one here in the winter, the early part of 2017. So the majority of the year I live in Brooklyn, and is, I have a weekly comedy show that is still going on without me uh, that I produce with my husband and a guy, yeah, and our friend Aaron. And so that is called The Living Room Show. It's at Postmark Cafe in Brooklyn in Park Slope. Fridays at 8. Say the name of the cafe again. I didn't... Postmark. Yeah, it's a free show. It's fine. It's like a TV clean, meaning the performers are not going to swear. Uh, and if they do, it's, it's not because they haven't already been asked not to. And it's just to kind of originally when we launched the show back in 06, it was a chance for 
us to prepare performances or sets that we would then take to late night and kind of encourage our professionally minded colleagues in the open mic scene to do the same. Now, eventually through time, obviously we became friends with people who have performed late night sets. So the quality of the show kept getting stronger of just like, wow, this is like, I wouldn't call it family friendly, but it was like late night friendly comedy for anybody that wants to have, you know, walk into this coffee shop and enjoy a free night of comedy. And it was, and it's still a great workout room for professional working comics. Cool. I, I look forward to seeing it once you're back in the city. Come down one weekend when you're well. Um, so is it doing the late night set? Is that on the list, uh, the bucket list of of dreams? Oh, totally. Yeah, and it's like I've I've submitted maybe once, um, a couple years back, but it's rare that it's not something I'm doggedly pursuing. It is just something that you know, if if the chance came up, like, hey, this booker for this late night show is looking for new a new crop of talent, I would then try to get a free night to try to hone a five minute tape or 10 minute tape and submit that. And that's the process. So yeah, it would be nice to definitely get exposure that way. I mean, that's, to yeah. me, that's one of my childhood dreams is to be doing stand up, but also on a show, like, you know, at the time it was Letterman that can't happen anymore, yeah. but you know, one of our late night shows. So but it seems like every comic has that story of their first time, uh, on a late night show. Uh, and, and <laughs> Ben Bailey, you don't care if I steal this, but Ben Bailey, Cash Cab. I love Ben Bailey. Cab, Cash Cab, Cash Cab. He has a podcast now that I was listening to the other day, and he was talking to Ray Romano. And Ray Romano told the story of his first time on Letterman after he had failed on one of the, the Carson sh- or Arsenio? no, no, no. He had he had gotten he, as he said he wasn't really ready, and he got cast as an actor in in uh, the, one of those uh, talk radio, yeah, uh, news radio, news, news radio. radio. Mm-hmm. And he flamed out, and they went another direction. And I guess it's really Ray Romano's story. I'm I'm stealing because I'm sure he's told it on many a show. But so a few months later, he got that Letterman shot, and it was spring leading into summer. And so Dave was doing, you know, he was in the green room watching uh, the show going on. And Dave started to do, it's going to be summer soon. So he cut off the legs of his pants on the air. And then he went and he cut off Paul Schaefer's legs. And Ray thought, oh my God, I'm going to cut off the legs of my pants. And then he sat there for a minute and he thought it through and he thought, no, it might be presumptuous. It might seem like I'm I'm trying to be part of this club I'm not part of yet. <laughs> right. It, it might throw my set off if I get this big laugh at the beginning. And he feels like this is a turning point in his career. And he didn't cut the legs off the pants. And he went out and he killed it. And and next and, and then he had a development deal with Letterman which became everyone loves Raymond after that. So that's, it's, it's a great lesson in, in thinking through impulsive things. Like I probably would have cut the, I, I would have cut the legs off. <laughs> well, I think especially for stand up, that was his, probably his stand up brain that kicked in and said like, don't deviate from what you know will work because like, I think, uh, you know, early on in your career, when you, when you, have your big opener and your big closer and you should, you know, you've got your A game, your A set that you want to do to make a good first impression. You get so confident with it. 
that your mind starts to wander while you're waiting for your spot and you think, I'm going to ad lib about this thing off the top. And then that derails, like it doesn't get the laugh you hoped it would because it's untested. It was just something you were trying out. And it's hard, harder for you to tell your A first joke, like out the gate, um, as well as you would have. And it kind of can just, it can just like have a domino effect on your whole set. So that's something you learn in your first couple of years of stand up that you start to just remember, like, first get that laugh, then add the new thing if you want, because you already warmed up the crowd and it won't mess, it won't throw you off if they don't laugh at it. You can just keep on going. So, yeah, I think he made the right choice. But I also think that he could have cut his pant legs and it would have been like cute for a second and then he could have done his set and still work you know yeah yeah i think it's more yeah it's more important in his history of his life than it probably was in the actual history in in his imagination of the importance of that moment but it's a it it, it, it yeah it is a good lesson i also like that if he had done it he could have you know followed that instinct and done it when he's famous and everybody would have loved it but it's kind of like when no one knows who you are it can be received differently right Exactly. What would be funny? <laughs> okay, no, never mind. It wouldn't have been funny if he came back five years later and just cut mm-hmm. the legs off your pants <laughs> and let the audience just uh, tilt their heads like dogs, like, what are you doing? And yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then said, thank you. But I mean, most of comedy is like trying and not doing well with it, but at least you tried. So you can't fault someone for trying and failing. And yet we do. Yeah, but if you're the persevering, like Luke and I, my husband Luke Thayer and I were just talking about Vince McMahon and how he's the most successful guy in his industry, you know, as the um, founder of WWE. But like he's, you know, he's like the big empire thing. But he, if you examine his career, there's a tons of stuff that big projects, public projects that he's failed at, you know, that have not been successful. And he doesn't let that stop him. So if you don't let bad press stop you and maybe even people, you know, being treated differently, let's say you're famous, you have a a flop, you get made fun of on late night, you show up at a restaurant and then you can tell people are whispering about you. You know, if you don't take it personally and you know that, okay, this doesn't mean I quit my career now, then if if everybody else forgets about it, because that kind of stuff, you know, unless it's, uh, you know, like I I can think of, you know, uh, Michael Richards tirade in the stand-up show or Mel Gibson drunken arrest. There are some things that are easy for people to use against you for the rest of your career, but you also, it just would take, I think, bouncing back and doing something positive that matters more to the public. That one's hard. You can't think of what's going to stick with people more, but like, look how it took Hannibal Burris to bring up the Cosby issue. People let that go under the rug for a very long time. Even I had read about allegations, but then just thought, oh, it must not be true because they got settled out of court and he's America's dad. And it's like, no, you just chose to ignore it. And now we're focusing on it. Yeah. And it was very, must've been scary and was brave of him, uh, you know, to step up as a black man and say, this is this, this is what this is. I mean, I don't know how, I don't think at the time he thought, I don't know if I should do this. I think he thought, of course I should do this. And that, you know, like, who cares? It's a private show. I'm going to mention it. It's part of my jokes. But I think that what it became, I remember feeling scared for him when it got so much traction. I was like, wow, you're going up against the cause. And I wonder what cause is going to come out with a statement against you. Like, I honestly thought that if, if you don't get more people understanding that this or believing that this really happened, that 
you can go down as the guy who tried to take Cosby down and failed. You know, like I, I do remember thinking that at the time, but I don't think he thought I'm going to change the world today by by exposing this man. Do you know if if Michael? I haven't. I'm surprised I haven't looked this up in the last few years. If Michael Richards works. I don't know what he's up to. The last I saw him was on an episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. He plays a character uh, on Seinfeld. But, yeah, I don't know what he's doing with his free time. When you're a millionaire, it's like you can work or you cannot work. That's what I was going to say. He's cashing checks. Yeah. Well, I think as an artist, he, he probably wants to work. But, but I don't know him personally, so I, wouldn't, I couldn't tell you. And, honestly, I wish I hadn't brought that up because that is part of the problem of because it's so easy for us to remember times that people have failed and consume them like they are our junk food. Like we are entitled to this public humiliation of this man. I don't think that, I don't think you should hide racism, you know, or a racist event like that, that hurts people. Um, but I also don't think personally that, um, that people need to be viewed through one lens because people, a lot of people do monstrous things. And, and I, I mean, I'm, I think none of us are innocent of that, you know, of being a jerk, ruining some hurting someone's feelings you know yeah, absolutely and we all i guess do our judging and or forgiving of people but he when he went on late night with with jerry on letterman or something after and everything he did it really seemed like more than his career he was like he seemed very just devastated that he had done that in because he I mean, he said racist things, but I think he felt like I am, I am an anti-racist person and I did this and, and I, and I've done this and it's forever. And I don't, I, I, I can be very vindictive, but I had a lot of sympathy for him. I think it was clear that it, yeah, affected him on a deeper level, that whole incident, you know, nobody wants that to happen. And it really surprises me how many celebrities bounce back from, public humiliation and their secrets, you know, on display and uh, just, you know, mistakes that you could have gone your whole life without anybody knowing, but then now that people know that's all they talk about with you. I think that's, just, that that's enough to, you know, torture a person, I think. Like say something you might've said on a live mic in a bus with Billy Bush. <laughs> no. Yeah. What's more surprising is how people can bounce back from it. Yeah. Incredible. Do you have, Moments that you remember of your of of worst dying and best killing on stage, anything that comes to yeah. mind, or someone out there, yeah, I think the, 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 who you're like, oh my god, so and so is out there. <laughs> well, I did, I did, <laughs> I remember like one of my least favorite performances for a college was during their senior week, and they had an open bar in this outdoor tent, and it was dusk, so there were no lights, they couldn't see me. I'm lucky I had a microphone, but it barely mattered because they were drunk. And then right before I went on, without my credits being listed, someone just says, you know, guys, quiet down, quiet down, guys. We're going to close the bar for a minute so you can watch this comedian. And when she's done, we'll open the bar back up. Okay, oh, here she God. is. And you could just hear this audible groan of like, oh, what? And so I had maybe four girls up front with glasses that were smiling at me the whole time and looking at me. But there was a section of people who, you know, were like, you're not funny. There's a section of people who wanted to get on stage. There was a guy who actually took the mic and people who cheered him on, like, yeah, let him do it. Let him perform. And so Chad actually was his name and they were chanting Chad. So I let him get on stage and he told jokes that weren't funny. I interviewed him essentially and then had him sit back down and then tried to get through the rest of my set. So it was very, very 
it, it feels like running a marathon when you're bombing like that and no one's listening, but you still have to say your, your jokes, you know, because it's not just a feature a sighting. It's actual conversation that you're trying to have with people who actively don't want to hear it. So you're just like, your heart's pounding, you're sweating. You're like, I don't know. At the end of it, you always feel like you just jogged around the block 10 times. So, um, so I called my friend, uh, or I, I think I, I t- tweeted at Joe DeVito. We did a little direct message. He's a comedian. I told him like, Oh, it was the worst ever. And he's like, uh, one of my worst gigs, I performed at a dinner and, uh, people were so unengaged and drunk, like, you know, not interested in comedy and drunk that they threw food at me because I actually had a pad of butter on my jacket. <laughs> And he goes, I went home to tell my mom or whatever. I, I reached out to my mom and let her know what happened. And she goes, well, you don't. How did she put it? Oh, man, this is the best part of the story. She's something like, oh, nobody's making you do comedy. <laughs> and it was just like, not only does he just get humiliated, but it's like I don't even get support from the person who's supposed to support me. So that made me feel better. Thank goodness for his story of bombing worse than I did. But no one's thrown food at me yet. Yeah, You could have gone to law school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, she's that's a tough crowd, mom. And how about how about great victories or or someone who was a, an idol of yours who saw a set or some you know anything? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that would be cool if someone like that I admired. What? No, you know what? That is always weird. If I'm ever sharing the stage with somebody like I remember Janine Garofalo was a guest on the Scott Rogowski show at UCB, and she did her panel. And then sat on the couch and then I came in and did stand up just like you would on a late night show, you know, like the guests are already on the sofa and you're doing a little bit of stand up and just like having her over my shoulder just made me wonder like, oh, now how are these jokes? You know, like I thought they were great when I didn't know anybody in the audience. But now that I've got someone who I actually care about their opinion, now how are they? And, you know, afterwards, she we talked shop and it was very, very sweet and, and friendly. But I think that. There, there's an extra layer of pressure that you don't necessarily need unless you're 100% feeling like on your A game and you're like, this is a rock solid, waterproof, bulletproof set. You know, I'm going to kill, blah, blah, blah. But um, my very favorite performance in general was opening for Aretha Franklin at Radio City Music Hall. Wow. I got this. I know it's so cool. I got this call last minute because whoever was her booked act um, dropped out or it was a, there was a booking confusion so that my management company was asked, is there anybody in New York that can perform on this? And my manager threw it my way. I said yes right away. I think I had like an hour to get into Manhattan and it's 45 minutes to get there. So I had like two seconds to pick out an outfit and prepare my set. And I did 20 minutes and it was really, really, it was great. It was like a 6,000 seat theater. It was like, Al, I later found out Al Sharpton was in the audience. I don't know if he, you know, had arrived by the time I was performing, but um, it was just really, really cool to be on Radio City Music Hall stage and say that I've opened for Aretha Franklin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but let's talk about your real ambition for a moment, and that is nail art. Nail art. Now, <laughs> let's not get this confused with becoming a manicurist. I have people that are like, you like no. to do nails? Totally do mine. It's like, oh, I would never, like no. manual labor. I've seen your work. The nail happens to be a very tiny canvas and the act of like removing the art once you've done it, you know, the fact that it's so easily dissolves is very Zen to me. It's like, you know, one of those like Buddhist sand paintings. We made it. Now it's gone. And is, is the, uh, the Instagram is curly comedy nail art. 
It is, but I mean, it's like a hobby Instagram. Nobody has to know about it. But if you do you're, find you're, it, you're pretty. You're pretty good. Thank you. You know, you you're very big on. I, I'm. You're very good. I could never do anything like I'm pretty good. Um, <laughs> my Instagram that features the nail art designs I make has grown at a faster rate than my comedy Instagram. You know, like the the, the Instagram that is my real life, and any social presence I have on the internet. And the reason I like dubbed the name of my hobby nails, you know, Instagram curly comedy nail art is to feed back into the fact that I'm a professional comedian and I, you know, like to make people laugh for a living. So if I can grow a fan base in any corner of the internet, I will. And then try to redirect it back to what I also do and have some crossover kind of posts to say, hey, if you like this nail stuff, you might also like to hear about my real life. Where I also do comedy and work with these people. <laughs> I also do comedy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is funny how people will say like, oh, I, I just thought you were my nail buddy and I saw your show on TV and it was like, oh my gosh, I know her. Yeah, that must be very exciting. You're like, oh my God, it's Abby, my nail friend. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure that is fun for them. And it's great to hear. Like, I love hearing about it if, I, if someone is pleasantly surprised and finds out that I also tell jokes. What, what I found most uh, all all kidding aside impressive is that you 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 draw ambidextrously and you were saying some you were saying some nail artists don't they just draw with their good hand on their bad hand well if they're just going to showcase it on the internet then they yeah well they will just use their dominant hand to get the design done quickly and and they won't waste time doing both hands because there's no need to for me it's like you get more designs done if you can do two different ones on two different hands and out of necessity, I need to, you know, I don't want to ever leave the house with only one hand painted. So I kind of practice using my left hand. And I'm a, I'm a right-handed person. Ah, I'm a lefty. Yeah, and you have 10 little canvases every time. That's right. So, yeah, what I was saying was, like, I'm a righty, so my left hand is still weaker than the right one. But at least I can knock out some stuff. Five-year fantasy career. Here we go. All right, let's dream big. Jamie, why not? Yes! <laughs> a house with a white picket fence. No, let's see. Um, okay, not not doing comedy. Wait, oh, I got to dream big. Let's not go small. Because <laughs> I don't want to just say, I hope I'm still working in five years, because that's a given. Okay, fine. Here we go. Oscar nomination. After having won the SAG Award. Of course. And Golden Globe. Um, so it's kind of like you're a shoe in. You're the front runner. You're the one we want to win. So a little little professional recognition there. Um, the number one hit show on television, and it's a comedy. Mm-hmm. And is it a multicam? Do I, re, do I bring multicams back? Like, do I revive them? Or do I take single cam to the next level? Who knows? We'll see. Um, I own a brownstone in New York. It uh, it cost a million dollars, but it was a million to renovate. And I own a house in, I guess, the hills. I really don't see the fascination with the hills because you have to drive on an incline the whole way. And if you're walking in your own hood, it's always, you know, it's exercise. So I don't know. But, like, a, a nice home in Los Angeles. Hey, Silver Lake. Yeah, someplace where you don't have to have a housekeeping staff because that's a little too bougie for me. But, but I could afford one if I needed to. Nice. Um, let me see. I don't believe in owning cars because they depreciate a lot of them depreciate in value. So I would lease like the nicest car, um, you know, as often as I like. 
What do you like? Uh, what would be a cool car to have? I always think, I mean, Mercedes drive nice. Corvettes are cool looking. I don't think I found the right car for me yet. Like, I always think a Lamborghini sounds nice, but then it seems too flashy for a comedian. It's just like, who are you, Kevin Hart? Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, does he work a lot. Um, he does work a lot. By the way, he's my best friend in five years. He's, and so is Oprah. I'm one of those people that Oprah believes in and, like, is gushes about. I'm, like, her latest pet. Uh, I can eat any sweet I want, and it has zero calories, but it also does not give you the runs. There's something new that was invented that allows for that to happen. And finally... <laughs> Um, I don't know. The education system in America is completely 100% perfect, and I feel like it's a safe place to have kids. Great. Cool. Yeah. And are you partially responsible for that saving of the education system? Somehow I am. It was through my stand-up comedy. Like, like you know, you don't think you're going to be a revolutionary just by having by sharing your ideas, but then I'm dubbed like the modern philosopher of the day. I'm like the Lin-Manuel Miranda of that year, plus I'm in the number one hit film at the time. So it's just kind of like, it's a real good year for me in five years from now. I see. I knew you were holding out on me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that all <laughs> seems perfectly achievable. So, except for the maybe the maybe the 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 the, uh, the laws of science and stomach disorders and sweets. I yeah. You know what the flip side to that is? Isn't aren't you afraid of like if you get everything you want, then there's nowhere to go up from there. There's only down, and also there's like, yeah, then people get tired of your face. Ugh. My concern, can I tell you this? My concern in life is not how people view me. It's how I've made them feel. And it's all because, you know, I owe it all to Maya Angelou. She's got that quote, and I think I'm taking it out of context. But part of her quote is, people won't remember the things you said. They won't remember the things you did. They remember how you made them feel. And I think that if I'm interacting with people, I care more, I care less about what do they think about me and more of how, do, you know, are they, are they comfortable with themselves? Do they feel like they matter? Do they know that, that they're okay? You know, I just, for some reason, it's just so much more important to me than, I mean, that gives me a better feeling than, oh, they really were impressed by that joke I told. It's more like, same with stand-up comedy. The reason that art form appeals to me the most is that people can take a load off their problems in life and just be entertained for a while. So it's just like for a brief moment in time, you can feel peace and happiness and not stress. I just love that. That's yeah. That's how I try to live. Yeah, and I just got done with episode what twenty seven with George Saunders, the author, and he he spends a lot of time talking about that. And he has a he has a very short graduation speech that was turned into a little book, and it's uh, it's available on audio too. That's all about kindness as the the priority that we all should have. Yeah, and it's not as a, I think, I don't know if that's a human thing, like when we share love, we experience love, and so you, I guess you could call it selfish, but it's also just like, why not, you know? Why why hold back? Why waste it? Yeah, yeah, I don't really believe in altruism. I believe it feels good to do things for, <laughs> for people. It, it really does. Uh, before we sign off, tell me uh, some some episodes coming up. They start in March again. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I just heard that they, they may not really be released as early as March. It might be August. So stay tuned on that. That's not for sure. But uh, I know that some episodes we are shooting involve gambling, pet care, uh, what's love, weddings, 
and I forget, I, I feel like there's other topics. I mean, obviously we're going to cover 13 different topics, but there's others that I do know of that I just can't, they're not coming to mind, but it's more life stuff. Oh, I know after hours, that's the thing we've been shooting a lot lately. So like what you do when you stay up all night and how you, how you carry yourself to maximize the fun. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because at this age, it doesn't, especially at this age and now that I don't live in a city, that doesn't happen very much, but I am going to a party tonight at a, at a, a restaurant, a friend's restaurant that is closed Ooh, tonight. And it's a, like a, 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 gr- a, a older, a, not older, like in our eighties, but an older grown up sweaty dance party is what we are gearing up to <laughs> friggin' do. And we don't have to close. I think at closing time, which around here is one. Um, oh, well, oh, wow. Yeah. No, this won't be heard till after it happens. So, I don't care. <laughs> this is a good exercise opportunity yeah, too. It's it a great workout. Yeah. Dancing with friends. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That'll be fun. Yeah. So I'll I'll, I'll let you know. I just stay hydrated. That's my only advice to you. That's the one I picked up from now. You can't drink enough water before you go out uh, for an all nighter. And I will conclude by saying uh, you can do better airs on True TV. You'll check your local listings for exactly what time and day that airs. This coming upcoming season after this podcast airs and i'm also going on tour with cake comedy it stands for carrie abby caitlin and aaron that's the four women that make up this comedy group and we are doing something unique which is we're selling tickets ahead of time through kickstarter in order to arrive at the place so we just got greenlit for philadelphia we sold all our tickets we will definitely be there in april but when it comes to dc that's our next town and i think um we may be doing indianapolis there are a few other cities to unlock so watch me on Twitter at Curly Comedy for information about how you can see me live. Real quick, who are the other women? Carrie Gravenson, Caitlin Bailey, and Aaron Judge. They're um, from all over the country. Aaron lives in L.A. Caitlin's from the South but lives in New York now, and, and Carrie's born and raised in the East Coast. So, And I'm from the Midwest. So you get a little something for everybody in this group. Right on. I will look for that. Thank you. Well, thanks, Jamie. I had a great time. Thanks, Abby, and thanks for starting over with me. (laughs) You know what the thing is about interviews that you've probably experienced now since you've been interviewing a ton of people is they're more fun when you feel like the interviewer knows of you. And because I remember when I interviewed people with people like the celebrities, if you got one fact wrong, they'd be so turned off. And and I, I used to think it was ego, but I think it's more of just like it makes you feel lonely to think that like I don't matter. Nobody knows who the heck I am. So I feel like it's always nice to feel like you're talking with a friend yeah i'm never going to do an episode with someone who i haven't at least researched the fuck out of oh we didn't get you to wait you didn't swear oh i didn't swear that what did i say in your last one ass this was gonna be this was gonna be this is my ticket you said asshole i think that was that was your sell your soundbite on ebay and make someone <laughs> that would imagine if you got that huge that I could sell the soundbite of you saying asshole on eBay. I know. I just realized how stupid that sounds like. That's like my go-to thing of someone's like, oh, can I have your napkin? And I'm like, yeah, sell it on eBay. Like, that's the joke. But when it comes to actual audio, the real thing is to leak it through TMZ. That's how you make some money. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for giving me that tip. Hey, that that part you just, you just, uh, you were just telling me about, uh, can I, it, can I put that that what you were just talking about 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 knowing who you're talking to? I might want to plug that in there. That was, I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah, I think it's nice. I, well, actually, I'll tell you more if you really want um, more of a soundbite. I was I shot a, a show, a game show with Michael Ian Black. Why? 
like in the fall of 2015 and it did not, I mean, I think it aired, but I actually, my position got cut before it was done. So you won't see me on this game show. Um, but we had, we got to work together. So we were, we had dinner together and I was telling him about how I would interview people and I was like, what's it like to be in the other chair? Cause I'm not, the only thing I'm interviewed for typically is podcasts, but when it comes to like junkets or entertainment outlets, like what's that like? Because, you know, sometimes people can be perceived as jerks and sometimes people can be perceived as, oh, they're such an angel. And it's like, I feel like the middle ground is more true of either having a bad day or they're just tired or whatever. And he said, he said personally, like, he's like, there's nothing worse than when somebody doesn't do their homework on you because, and it's not your ego. It's just that you've worked hard and they've invited you. It's like they bothered to invite you. But so when they ask you basic stuff like, so what have you done? And how do we know you? It, you know, it's just kind of like, why did you waste my time? It's just not my job to be my PR person at that point, I think in life. He didn't, that's not a direct quote, but just to hear it from him, it's like, oh, no wonder it really, really helped when I was in entertainment news to be prepared and to have seen the actual work and to know the actual names of their co-stars. And, and it just, it just, it's not just, um, you know, it's just flattering to anybody. Like it works even if they're not famous to just say, here's why I think you're amazing. And here's what I already know about you. And I feel like it's dumb telling you this because this is your job and you already know that, but it's just like to hear it from him firsthand. It was like, Oh, I get it. Everybody that you're interacting with, has their cool position for a reason and they've, you know, worked hard and accomplished stuff. So if you can reference it or you're familiar with it and you can speak to how much it means to you, that's helpful. You know, it kind of like everybody just likes to be appreciated, I think is what it boils down to. It's like, you know, your efforts are acknowledged. Yeah. You talked to me last time about the flip side of that. And that is when you did the people magazine job and you'd have celebrities coming in and, and it's easy to, to, dislike someone if they're having a bad day or they're rude to you or they're dismissive but they're doing this 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 is part of their living all day every day but you were saying that it meant a lot when they did engage you as a host right yeah like that that did wonders too just like oh i matter you know it just makes you feel like you're a normal person versus somebody who doesn't look you in the eye and who the second the interview's over just takes off their mic and walks directly out without saying thank you or goodbye have a good day you know like it just makes you feel like you're you're a piece of crap if somebody treats you like that. So yeah, it all boils down to respecting people. Yeah, I think things like that feed our worst our worst tendencies to want to be big. When you have that experience, when someone big times you, you got to resist that image that your response is "I want to be bigger than they are," is not the right response. No, it's not. It's a bad motivator because it means when you are on top, you are going to do that to somebody. And it's like, no, don't bully. Don't become a bully just because you were bullied. That's no good. Cool. Well, good luck finishing them up. Thanks. Thanks so much. And uh, good luck with future episodes. I'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot. Bye, Jamie. Bye-bye. You can find Abby on the interwebs by searching for her, A-B-B-I-C-R-U-T-C-H-F-I-E-L-D, or on Twitter or Instagram at Curly Comedy, spelled just the way it sounds, or and and at Curly Comedy Nail Art.
which is really awfully impressive. Um, and look for You Can Do Better on True TV. Also look for the Cake Comedy Tour by going to cakecomedy.com. It kicks off in April in Philadelphia. You can find all of our episodes at 15minutesjamieberger.com. And you can also find how to rate and review us on iTunes there. And you can find how to donate there uh, to keeping the show going and lots of other good stuff. Coming up is a little mini episode about being a 52-year-old fanboy of George Saunders and going to his reading in Cambridge a little postscript to our George Saunders episode. Also coming up is another lovely conversation with WFMU's Hardy White. Thanks as ever to Ed Patnode for engineering and to Christian Kandari for making our theme music. Stay tuned, won't you? This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.